podcast to magically disappoint your parents. <laughs> it's like a jazz lounge in here. It is a jazz lounge. <laughs> so we're back for the masculinity episode. We survived talking to two men. <laughs> That's the nicest way to put it. Two men who are conscious about everything that they do and say <laughs> and make differences every day. Yes. We appreciate you, Daniel. And, and Constancio. Dr. Arnaldo. Dr. I, I revert back to Constancio yeah. and then Dr. Arnaldo. You gotta earn that uh, casual... <laughs> I know! You uh, got it! You got it! Okay, so to Dr. Arnaldo. But just to, <laughs> just to recap real quick, um, we learned a lot about how masculinity is defined for Filipino-American men and how it's not defined for Filipino-American men. It's ever-changing and... Um, and also ever evolving ever evolving especially in like the context of like what we are in today and how like you know things like Asian like waves of like uh, I don't know K-pop or even like anime like redefine how we start thinking about masculinity you know and then how men are regurgitating not regurgitating digesting digesting and then and then regurgitating but hopefully keeping it down right (laughs) I think my favorite thing that Daniel said in the last episode was, you know, it's never too late to have a Filipino awakening, you know, because sometimes, damn, yeah, that was really deep, I love that. you I love know, that. like, so if you're like 65 or something, you're like, you know what, I've always called myself American, I'm not Filipino anymore, you know, this might be the time, <laughs> and that's my mom right now, which I'm like really happy about, that she literally, like, she'll come to me after work now, she's like, well, then, you know what this petite said to me today, and I'm like, oh, what's the tea, mom, <laughs> and like, every day, she tells me, like, they are so annoying and rude, and da 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 but it's like, okay, mom, let's calm yeah. down. Like, let's calm down and process. Let's calm down and process where it's coming from before we start, like, you know, throwing down, like, you know, putits, you know. But even though we do that all the time. <laughs> <laughs> and so we also wanted to give and hold space for our fans. We got a nice long uh, letter off our Apple podcast. But we also want to say thanks to um, the nine people who gave us five stars. What? It's like we're winning, like, the Golden Globes or something. All right, so let me – this one's a nice and long one, but it really pertains to today's episode, which is going to be about immigration. All right, so um, this one uh, – darn, you know, I forgot to get the name off. Oh, uh, we, we, we will tag you. Yes, we, we will, will tag, tag you <laughs> on the gram. <laughs> we're only human. All right, so this one um, states, I just started listening to your podcast, and y'all mentioned being cut off since you're the youngest sibling, Ubuntu. As I am too, my parents came to the U.S. in the late 70s learning, um, leaving five of my siblings behind to be raised by my grandmothers on my mom's side. I was then born and only born in the U.S. I too was raised by my grandma again on my dad's side in the Bay Area. During that time though, my parents were hella hustling, finding work all over California. My siblings were brought here to the U.S. in the mid-80s, and by the early 90s, I was cut off by that understanding that my siblings Uh, were raised. My dad and mom would always say, you wouldn't understand because you're the only one born here. Mm -hmm. Again, I grew without knowing my siblings very well. I felt alone. I didn't want to be in the medical field after high school. I was shunned. I wanted to be in the architectural engineering industry. I put myself to work. I bought my own house when I was 24. Wow, you're (laughs) real long. (laughs) Been living alone until I became engaged. Um, My parents and siblings never even spent a night or weekend at my house, where are they now? Living in the same city as my parents. I repeat, history, I lived on my own because I'm American and I wouldn't understand. Wow, that was, thank you for giving us your life story about um, the immigration process and kind of the impact it has on the generation of uh, 
folks who live out here. And I feel like that's something that usually tends to happen for like people who are like 1.5 generation or second generation, like this disconnect that happens when you like immigrate, like well, when your family, like you come from a family of immigrants, right? you know, and then there becomes like this whole war within yourself. Like I feel like I'm always at war with, you know, my family and then I'm at war with the rest of society when I'm out here, you know, like trying to go ahead and balance between my culture and also balance between the society I live in and what do what role do I play? Like and how many faces do I have to wear? Right, this internal alienation that's happening in your own home. So which turns into isolation, you yes. know. So in turn like and I feel like the topic of immigration and also being in relation to that as a second generation growing up and also being born here really brings up these feelings of like, you know, resentment that tend to build up, you know, from right. that. And it's even harder to kind of like, so, all right, here's a story about that hap that is going on right now. So, um, as most of you know that I am a teacher and I have a co-teacher from the Philippines that works with me every day. Um, so my co-teacher uh, experienced a bit of xenophobia, um, which kind of like seems a little bit strong. Basically what happened was we were in class and it's not unknown to the, the students that, you know, my co-teacher is from another country. You know, she has an accent, you know, we all know the Filipino accent, you know, switch your V's with your B's and your B's for your B V's and your F's for your P's. Right. And so... The students decided it would be funny to make fun of the way she said paper. Mm. And so basically what happened is that they mimicked the way she said paper. And the thing is, they did that right in front of her and in front of me. And they started laughing. Like, it was the funniest thing in the world. And the thing is, like, my coworkers going through a lot. They immigrated here on their own. Their family is back in PI, and she's sending money to them. And she has been here for only three months on her own. It's you scary. Know, it's isolating. And I I really, it really got me, like, because it made me think of my mom. It made me think of every immigrant who comes here and is being made fun of, being seen as lesser than, as if you don't matter. And so my coworker, like, started struggling that for the last two days. I don't blame her. And I went off on those kids, you know? And it's, like, this ignorance that builds up. As a teacher, like, I hope to intervene in that and make sure that we stop that in its tracks because those children, those students become adults, become people. And those types of attitudes, they turn into something ugly. It turns into go back to your own country. So thank you for putting this into lots of context for our listeners and why we are tackling this, particularly on this episode. And I want to bring on our special guest to really speak upon some of this. And drum roll, please. Welcome, Dr. Tessa Winkleman yeah. of UNLV. <laughs> thank you. Thanks for having me. Excited to be here. Yeah. <laughs> Excited to be here. Yeah. Um, Tessa, can you go ahead and tell if I can call you? Yeah, <laughs> no problem. All right, everyone okay. else, you have to say Dr. Winkleman. All right, yeah. but if you're in my classes. <laughs> we can call you. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Only in her classes. All right. So, um, Dr. Tessa, all right, can you tell us a little bit about yourself? Maybe three things that you love. You know. Oh gosh, three things that I love. Well, I do love my job. I teach at UNLV. Um, I teach. The U.S. and the world um, courses. I teach the Asian immigration course, which is called From Asia to the Americas. Mm -hmm. And I teach uh, 
a kind of global gender studies course. So I like that about myself. I have two little kids who, um, you know, with two that are under three, it's really hard to get any work done. <laughs> but somehow I'm managing to. So you're doing I, I your best. Like I, should, I should give myself some credit for that. All the credit. Um, and oh, I also am really good at doing my nails. You she are on Instagram. Yeah, I'm really good at doing my nails. I know you <laughs> are. It's a great way to decompress <laughs> and whatnot. So Tessa, you know, and I'll add to what do you, what do you think of um, Rose's story? So I'm just feeling the weight of it. You know. Yeah. I mean, it's. I don't think the sad thing is, is I don't think it's unique. Mm-hmm. Right. It's common. Um, for little kids, people don't think that they pick up on stuff, but as early as like you know one, two years old, they're aware of things like racial differences, differences in nationality, of where people were born, if they're like American or not. So, you know, it's, they're constantly kind of bombarded with stuff mm-hmm. right. that because of how our society is. And as early as that, they're trained to think specific ways about people in terms of mm-hmm. identifying difference mm-hmm. and associating value or not value with those differences. I have a question for both of you. You know, it makes me really think about, you know, especially what Tessa was saying, that the context within their operating. And, you know, when we think about um, the American school system and the kind of history they teach, you right. know, um, what their parents have learned and what they perpetuate at home, um, you know, I think it's really unique that you stood by her in terms of this, um, in terms of standing up for her in that sense, like, I am a Filipino-American, like, let me kind of intervene or mediate the situation. But I know a lot of people who wouldn't, who are first or second generation, who turn mm. a blind eye, who just identify as like, oh, well, yeah, you are the other, so what else? And that's the other thing that's really interesting, because the students that did that, they're students of color, mm-hmm. you know? And I had the conversations mm. like, isn't this something that affects all of us? Don't you come from communities? Or, like, isn't anyone in your family non-English speakers? They all said, Yeah. And I was like, so why are we putting down someone else who's also, like, first language is not English? Yeah. And it feels like there's always, like, it kind of mirrors, like, the whole oppression Olympics, but in terms of, like, who's better? You know, it's like, who, like, I am trying to put myself and my community forward above yours. But at the same time, that's just hurting all of us because we're, no matter what, at the end of the day, we're seen as, what, the other. Yeah. You know? And so I feel like communities always tend to do that thing, especially communities from immigration backgrounds. Mm -hmm. (sighs) It's so sad. Well, it happens when different communities are, you know, trying to fight for scraps a lot of the time. Yeah, Yeah. that's a great point. And it's, it's a historical fact that they were made to fight for scraps intentionally Mm -hmm. by things like like plantation labor, right, mm-hmm. that intentionally tried to segregate migrant workers so they wouldn't form solidarities. And um, that's a, you know, historical strategy to support the capitalist system of production. Right. Yeah, yeah. Right. and I feel like there's a lot of immigration attitudes, especially nowadays, um, with things like go back to your country or, um, mm-hmm. like, cer- certain bans, like the Muslim ban that happened a couple of years back. Um, all these have come to light, you know, and all these are being contested on a daily basis. And they're happening in our classrooms. They're happening in our families. They're happening with our coworkers. Because believe me, it was it was really awkward to hear my coworkers start talking about these things. And now I'm like, I stay in my class 
classroom during lunch because I do not want to hang around people who are making fun of other people's accent. Like wow, so it's also on the colleague level, not just the. And but that's the thing. It's like, are we level. surprised? Yeah. Are we ever really surprised? <clears throat> and it's like just like Tessa said. It's like it's more. It, it's going to happen. Right. But it's like, how do we keep letting it happen? How do we let these cycles happen, you know? So can you two give me more context about, like, our immigration history here? You don't have to say the entire thing, but how this continues to tie itself into this first situation we've covered. Like, you know, I mean, why are we here? I mean, because when I when you talk about this teacher and how they're ridiculing her, we are forgetting the fact that she's filling in an age, education labor gap, mm-hmm. right? And how it, vital she truly is to Which the state is, of Nevada. Yeah, exactly. So that's the biggest thing right now, right? So we're, there's a huge shortage on, you know, SPED teachers or special education teachers here in Nevada. And this, there was an article about a year back talking about this, you know, huge gap in, um, you know, or lack of SPED teachers. Mm-hmm. And so where did they get that labor from? They got it from the Philippines. So they hired a lot of Filipino teachers to fill in the hole that a lot of SPED teachers left, you know, American SPED teachers. So now we have a lot of special education Filipino teachers who are now here. But they're like, I will try to find the exact article, but apparently there's a discrepancy on, you know, compensation for Mm. them. So they're paid less. Being paid less than teachers here, allegedly. So, but <laughs> allegedly, hmm, more like fact. Uh, but yeah, and so kind of thinking about that, it goes back to transnational labor, you know, again, right. outsourcing on the expense of another country, and then who doesn't have to worry that much about it? The U.S. Yeah, <laughs> what other industries are affected by this um, trans? So when we think about medical, nursing, nursing. Medical, right? nursing. Has filled in the gap. Education. Education now. Um, I feel like we can start, like, you know, saying um custodial work janitorial work yeah. you know oh yeah so service, service. Yeah. especially oh. uh has does anyone watch watch hassan minaj patriot i Act? do yeah did you see the cruise one no no Spoilers. you don't know oh or, i've heard about the cruise worker one. yes yeah. that like what was it uh it was either two-thirds or one-third of like cruise line workers are filipino you know, and how much like they're getting paid between like five hundred to six hundred dollars a month. Whoa! Mm-hmm. And they work twenty four hours on these cruises. Yeah. Yeah. And so it's pretty terrible when you think about like the labor of like Filipinos globally. You know. Right. It's- Heavy, heavy silence is about to fall upon us. <laughs> I mean, there are labor recruiters in the Philippines that recruit people into those types of jobs, and they're pretty coveted for a country that doesn't make a ton of effort to provide local jobs nationally. Mm-hmm. So you see, I mean, it's been basically state policy for the country to encourage people to leave to work rather than thinking that they can stay and, and find work. That's a great point. Um, And that's why you see things in the airport of the Philippines that have, like, the OFW special line. They're treated as Mm. national heroes because they leave and they leave their families and they go make money and they send it back. And so they get preferential treatment in the airports that they they have their own line, right? It's, you know, um, when Gloria Arroyo was the president, she said, you know, something like those immigrants should or those workers should not even think about coming home. They should continue to work outside of the nation. Right, so thank you for sharing that popular narrative mm-hmm. that is still perpetuated t- today. Yeah, you know, from 
<clears throat> where our parents came from. And... I feel like a lot of that is also talking about traditional routes of like immigration reasonings and motivations, you know. But like a lot of things, like one thing that really piques my interest usually is unconventional means Do of tell. immigration. So, for example, and this is a personal tidbit, like people in my family um, have uh, immigrated uh, by having forming relationships or marriages with like U.S. Americans. Um, so ma- mainly like Filipina to American men relationships that tend to happen and become a thing of where the whole male order bride uh, uh, tidbit starts happening, right? Mm-hmm. But I feel like a lot of people negate or forget the fact of like what socioeconomic environment is putting Filipino women into these situations and coerce them into probably forming these relationships. A lot of people deem like, I feel like, Filipinas who do marry into like these marriages. <laughs> Sorry. Especially think. what Tessa was talking about. Exactly. If that's encouraged. If that is encouraged, then what else, like, what other things are influencing that mindset or like these acts to like find ways to immigrate? Yeah. Well, so one of the things that's a contemporary, a real contemporary concern, I think, for a lot of the fiance visa and spouse visa mm-hmm. applicants is that it can be a significantly shorter process than just like immigrating through the regular immigration process right so oh. for the fiance visa application you could be waiting between like six months to maybe two years kind of thing to to meet your partner wherever they are yeah but for regular kind of immigration what we see is like from the philippines which is the second like the second sender of of immigrant applications to relocate as permanent residents in the United States after Mexico, the largest groups of people that are coming or that are applying to come Mm -hmm. are people that are brothers and sisters um, of people that are already here Mm. as residents or as citizens um, who are adults. And then the third largest, or no, the second largest is... Um, adult sons and daughters, right? So the wait time that those two very large pools of immigrants that are applying can be anywhere from like, you know, 10 to 20 plus years in terms of the backlog of people that are waiting for this legal process to actually come here as potential permanent residents. Whoa, huge difference. Huge difference, especially like in my mom's generation and probably how much that like I don't like from the context of what I know is like the experiences of my aunts and my mother who back during like the early 80s mid 80s for that type of like you know immigration route and then now like how much is that even more backlogged to 2019 Mm -hmm. yeah and I think now but again about that teacher that you're talking about is she guaranteed citizenship working here that's the other thing that I am not too sure about however I do know that it's very conditional for people who do like come here for working like they have a conditional work visa I believe Mm -hmm. and what happens happens is like they have to maintain that job but if they lose their job they have six months to find another job but they cannot have a job outside of their designated Occup- occupation oh. that they applied to come here in the first place Lots of so if tape. you if you if you get laid off as a teacher but you need to still pay the bills you can't go ahead and pick up a job at like you know as Doing a waitress or anything. yeah or anything like that because that's all they're like nope you're not doing what you're supposed to do when you're like you know meant to like Mm-hmm. get hired for yeah. so wow yeah, that really, I mean so that kind of shows you how like the, the idea that 
immigrants are becoming, you know, are going to be public charges because they won't have work, et cetera, is like part of the reason why people have a hard time getting work is because of the system of immigration, because of the bureaucratic kind of red tape, right? Like for fiance visas, they have to get married once they get here within, I think, three months, two or three months, Uh right? And in that time period, I don't think they're allowed to work. Oh, so, I mean, it really That's puts these great. women, mostly women, right, in precarious positions because they might not have any other source of support once they get here. So even wow. if they come here and determine that they don't actually want to marry this person anymore after having been with them Whoa. for like you know a month and seeing mm-hmm. how they live, etc., um, they they don't have a means of supporting themselves necessarily, right? Wow. And then. If they want to stay here, they have to get married within that time period. You know what this really reminds me of? Um, I took an Asian American feminist studies course, and we talked about like uh, um, Japanese brides who oh, yeah. had to like you know be the on the whim, picture brides yeah. uh-huh. had to be on the whims of their uh, fiancés and husbands mm-hmm. to even immigrate, and then also like having to pit themselves against other uh, Asian uh, wives who were immigrating. So, like, you had this contrast to, like, the Chinese women who were already pre-married but had to prove and go through extensive questioning that that this was their husband and that all their answers had to match up, Mm -hmm. you know? And so kind of thinking about, like, how women and immigration, like, are always at the whims of men, you know, Mm -hmm. patriarchy-wise, and that it has to follow a U.S. standard of marriage and patriarchy. Does that make sense? Yeah. Well, there's, like, historic reasons for that. Mm -hmm. So, like, one of the early precedents that I can think of that kind of, um, they kind of um, supported, like, men's desires to have these women from overseas was mm-hmm. the the War Brides Act during World War Two. Right. Right. So that allowed soldiers to to bring wives and children from the war zones in Europe mm-hmm. and in Asia back to the United States as part of not of the kind of immigration quotas that were at the time. Right. Um, and then that ended like after the war. But prior to that, what the U.S. does in terms of restricting immigration is um, it really kind of tries to characterize women from Asia specifically as, and other places, but really in terms of Asian American history, there's there's a real sense that um, they try to classify most of the women that are trying to come here as sex workers or prostitutes, mm, right, right, as a way right. to prevent them from coming in mm-hmm. uh, because, because they didn't want Chinese, Japanese, Filipinos forming families in the United States and settling down. Mm. Um, so that's... Wow, what context to that, like... Yeah, you're really, like, I'm just, like... Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. It's a lot to... Like, all all this is always hard to digest, right? Immigration, like, in terms of the conventional, unconventional, finding out, like, these lines, these roots of patriarchy and, uh, like, xenophobia, as well as sexism and just fetishization of, like, Filipino women. And internalizing fetishization. And internalizing that and, like, utilizing that in Mm -hmm. a way. Like, having to feel like you need to utilize these stereotypes in order to progress. Mm -hmm. Does that make sense, everybody? I'm just, I'm kind of, like, angry right now. I'm just, like, trying to, like, it's like, I gotta hold on to something. I'm gonna hold on to my shirt and choke myself with it. It's not a happy story. Yeah. And they're all working together in a way, right? Like, um, this fetishization and immigration and like so the systems. this weird like ball 
of an orb of strings <laughs> that are just it looks like a windows like you know little ball thing does anyone know what I'm talking about like that windows ball that this makes me really think of families <laughs> right now like if we're talking about what Tessa's saying in real time like how maybe in families like offspring are just what if they they you know what if they hear jokes or demeaning things about their mother who is you know, an immigrant, and I'm ready, like, to throw hands every day. (laughs) I'm so sorry. Every time, like, especially when I, like, I feel like I've talked about this before on the podcast, like, when I would take my mom to get a doctor's appointment, or if there's an emergency, we take her. My mom's the first one to speak. Automatically, they treat her like she's dumb. They're like, like, ma'am, da-da-da-da-da. And I'm just like, then once I hear that tone, I step in, and then, like, they hear me speak. You know, right? And it's like, yeah, I have the American accent. All of a sudden, their attitude flips. Right? It's like, oh, she, okay, so they. Oh, speak. okay, someone's advocating. For yeah. Oh, <laughs> so, someone's advocating. It's on the man. It's like, okay, bitch. All right, I'll see you. I'll see you at the front desk later. Right. So, <laughs> the comment box. <laughs> Meet me at the flagpole. <laughs> this is really, really helpful because you know, as we are all like young Asian women, like how many times we have seen as like. You know, in another, in a future uh, neo way of like looking at, <laughs> in a, in a neo way of looking at uh, mail order brides, right? You know, right. like, you know, people who've liked you in the past are like, oh, you know, you do stuff because you're Asian, right? And that translates yeah. from this war pride act, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah. I just, I feel like we're at a crossroads in which, you know, how do we try to humanize like these methods a lot of people don't try that anymore or don't even try to like see Mm -hmm. that story of how and why and historically like you know why we are where we are for filipinos and this is like we just let it be and then it just becomes this way of life it it becomes therefore um like value rather than like trying to intervene with where these become toxic Mm -hmm. What I try to tell my class that focuses on Asian American and Asian immigration to the U.S. is to kind of think, have people heard that term, we didn't cross the border, the border crossed us? Ooh, Ooh never heard right? that. I mean, well, like, that, that strikes well, my heart. Like, definitely, I prescribe to that state. <laughs> so, I mean, it's typically, you know, when people say that, you imagine U.S. and Latin American relations, but, you know, people forget and... There's a reason why people don't know that the U.S. was like a colony, or the Philippines was a colony of the United States. Mm. Um, And as a colony, Filipinos had the ability to travel through the empire in ways Mm. that other Asians didn't, right? They could go to Hawaii. They could go Mm -hmm. to the United States. They came as students. They came as workers. Um, And then when the U.S., you know, they filled these kind of essential labor shortages, right, especially after the... Chinese um, Exclusion Act, working on plantations and agriculture and stuff, and people that were running these plantations were actively like, bring more Filipinos here, right? right? At the same time as people in the Philippines are extracting resources Mm. and things like, you know, growing sugar and mining gold and all these things, right? right? So then in the 30s, when the U.S. kind of puts the Philippines on the fast track to independence with the Tidings-McDuffie Act... Mm they end this relatively easy migration for Filipinos by saying, okay, within 10 years, the Philippines is going to be independent, right? Mm -hmm. Um, 
at the same time, they add on this clause about, well, now Filipinos are no longer classified as U.S. nationals, so they can't come to the U.S. anymore. Right. Um, they have to now, at this point in 35, be classified as any other immigrants with 50, 50 people as part of the quota. Right. right. And that's right. it. Right. So that was um, kind of a, a history primer in terms of how, how immigration looked and then how it came to look with the kind of onset of independence. Um, this makes me, you know, with everything that you just said, I just think of our country as kind of this sponge, right? So we are sponging all this great talent and labor, we're sponging the resources, and then once, you know, we've taken all the great creative juices or, you know, the great things about our country, we kind of toss it into these clauses and be like, have no accountability crossing that border, you know, or extending theirs and then walk away from it. And this happens, as you said, with the Chinese and others. And, you know, our country is very, I want to say country, the Philippines is very rich with resources and still being expunged to this day mm -hmm. of all those things. And this also makes me think about how, like, when we extract from another country, we leave that country bare. And poor. And poor. Mm -hmm. And it's like, when we look back in the Philippines during the time of war, like, um, Prior to Marcos, you know, country was still doing relatively well, you know, prior to Marcos. But then we had uh, Marcos era happen. Philippines went into major debt. Mm. A lot of Filipinos left. And then the country was left in, like, ruins in a yeah. way. And to this day, it's still, like, going through so much, po uh, like, political intrigue and, like, Again, with everything happening with Duterte's, like uh, on top of a corrupt system, right? A so corrupt system, poverty, it, and, and we broke the political system. And now we have like you know people like my coworker who are special, like working with special education, who are in these professional like you know um, occupations, being outsourced to other countries, and therefore benefiting another country, mm -hmm. and therefore leaving the country bare. But we're also thinking about what do our counterparts think about in terms of their narrative, right? When we think about um, how maybe Americans see us, they're like, well, we did you charity, right? We did the parental attitude, yeah, like, right? Democracy yeah. to Southeast Asia. We helped you, you little <laughs> yeah. brown thing. Aren't you grateful? <laughs> we take your scraps, honey. Yeah. Next. <sighs> yeah. so. I, mean, I think that's, a, that's the kind of you know, idea that a lot of people have, that the U.S. was a different kind of empire from, like, the mm. Europeans or whatever, right? <laughs> um, and the Americans touted themselves as that. They're like, we're different from the Spanish. We're going to do, like, all this great stuff for you. And people in the Philippines even still kind of remember the kind of, you know, the efforts of the American teachers, and they would, like, mm -hmm. you know, form relationships with people in the villages. And a lot of people in the Philippines really, like, appreciated it and became close with those teachers and I think that's part of right. why there's this really um, ambivalent attitude about the US's role in the Philippines but on both sides right mm -hmm. although I mean I see a lot of histories that are coming out now in terms of um, works that are being done by scholars that are really the Philippines is becoming a kind of prime location to understand US Empire right and I think mm -hmm. we're gonna keep seeing a lot of studies that kind of show, you know, the history in very real and palpable ways that people are going to start understanding that history differently. That's very hopeful. 
Dr. So, Tessa I mean, Winkleman, thank you so much for all of that. Like for giving the historical context to be able to help us digest that better because And our listeners too. Yeah, because a lot of us I didn't know a lot of that history. Yeah, you know, I do know that we there are mm-hmm. structures mm-hmm. of like American education systems left and that's what a lot of like Filipino education systems still follow, mm-hmm. you know, is an American structure. Yeah, yeah. And therefore it probably makes it easier to transition and become a worker in the U.S. You're yeah. so right. Like, you know, my mom was saying that she's like, you know, we know American history better than the Americans because <laughs> they have to know all the things, all the dates to mm-hmm. assimilate mm-hmm. easier. And so become a prime worker later in the future for the U.S., huh? And then sponged again. And <laughs> and that's, yeah. it's, so, it's like so ironic. I think he, Kathy Choi's book talks about Filipina nurses, right? Mm, yeah. So I have several aunts that are Filipina nurses and is a, American colonial education system that trained Filipinas to be nurses in the American kind of fashion, right? Right. But when nurses came here, they find that they weren't able to pass exams. Yes, exactly. They were excluded from certain types of jobs. Very much. So even though they're trained under a U.S. system, they still find themselves, when they come here, having to take kind of other positions that are less desirable, right? Or shelling out more money in this whole uh-huh. gatekeeping in system. In order to go ahead and gain access. Mm-hmm. Oh, sorry. That is so real. You know, I my friend who is an RN had to go back to school in San Francisco mm-hmm. just to create it. And she's already been in the field. So, mm-hmm. yeah, I mean. That was the same thing that happened to my mom. They told her she needed to take more, like, you know, education credits in the, like, you know, college system. And then she had to pay more fees in order to go ahead and mm-hmm. enroll. And then it's it becomes a whole big debacle in which, like, you already spent so much money getting here. A capitalist debacle, a right? Like, a well, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yes, yeah. It's a debacle. So it's like, you shell out all your money, all your efforts to get here. And then they ask you for more and more until there's nothing left. Mm-hmm. Wow, I'm just really processing. My heart. <laughs> that happens with the immigration process because it, because of the backlog and how many applications get denied, right? You're paying into the system to process your your application, right? So, like, I have a couple friends that they just were trying to come here on tourist visas just to, mm. to come with their friends and partners or whatever, just to, you know, two weeks, have fun, whatever, and go back to Manila. Uh, but they had to, like... You know, it's like over a hundred dollars that they had to pay, and like that's not a small Whoa. amount of money, especially like, yeah in translation. Too. Yeah, and then they even had to prove like that they weren't gonna, you know, stay overstay their tourist visas by showing that they had property and Whoa. all kinds of like wealth in the Philippines, and then they still got denied a simple <laughs> tourist visa. Versus us, you know, like now that we're considered oh, yeah. also American, it's just like, oh, I booked my Airbnb and whatever. Who knows if I am an unscrupulous person, you know? If you're an American, you can go to the Philippines without a visa for almost a month. Whoa. I watched a whole vlog on like this dude who did that. Hashtag like, privileges. Yeah, you don't even <laughs> need to apply. You just buy a plane ticket and go. And if you don't stay for longer than 21 days, then you don't even have to do anything. Whoa. This is some bullshit. <laughs> Someone had to say it. This is some bullshit. <laughs> well, I love so that's like the... These are every the, day. Dis, that's the disparity between mm-hmm. who can go there, right? And people are like, oh, well, because, you know, they want the tourism. It's good for blah, blah, blah. But there's a reason why the economy is steered in certain ways to accommodate a tourist demand and not actually serving the population that lives there right right? so it's this continual tone that we're subservient right in every facet Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. 
Well, any last things to share on immigration? Any I know that's thoughts? not... Any last... Here's the encyclopedia. <laughs> encyclopedia of immigration. Tessa, about... It's clear that there needs to be an overhaul of immigration policies to reflect this the specific history of the U.S. and the Philippines and to mm-hmm. reflect upon what the U.S. has done in terms of leaving this colonial legacy that has impacted the potentials for the nation and the people, Mm -hmm. right? And what I think that looks like is freer and open migration of Filipinos to be able to come to the U.S. whenever they want to because that's what the U.S. did to the Philippines, right? So... (laughs) Are you running for office? Just kidding. (laughs) I support you. (laughs) I advocate for you. Yeah. Well, thank you so much. <laughs> Again, um, thank you. I hope so this much. will not be the last of the three of us. I'm sure, as I, I'm sure, this will awake it, awaken a lot of responses from our listeners. And feel free to go ahead and shoot us a you know a DM, a comment about anything that we discussed in this episode, and we will try to go ahead and readdress it. More than likely, we will. Any last thoughts for the listeners? Any wise uh, words, words of wisdom? Words of wisdom you can bestow. <laughs> I would say. Seek the history and find the truth. Yeah, that's all you need to know. That's deep. That was the, the greatest uh, birthday present I could ask for. Is, you know, to reacquaint myself with my identity every time. It's, as Daniel was saying, it's never too late to understand your Filipino awakening or your, your history that's um, hidden in the matrix. <laughs> <laughs> it's hidden. It's hidden. <laughs> so, well, this is Bruja Baddies. This is Jean, and we're signing off. And we are still... Magically, magic, magic, magic. disappointing America. <laughs> <laughs>